0: so let's continue on here with Kant. Uh, This would be episode five, if you can believe it, Um, starting with the second book of the Transcendental Dialectic, and that is chapter three, so the ideal of pure reason. But before then, you can go find this on iTunes or Podbean or Spotify, all under the same name. There will be links in the description, as well as my Patreon account for anyone interested in that, uh, because the goal is to get about $12 a month right now, in order to pay for the podcast to keep it up, you know, obviously for free, uh, which is really the point of this. So if you have money to do it, great. If not, then do not feel obliged. Uh, But on that note, let's get through this. Maybe we can get through the rest of the book today. I don't know. My notes tell me that's not going to be the case, but we'll try. All right. So to repeat, we're now in the third chapter of the second book of the Transcendental Dialectic with the ideal of pure reason. So when we talk about the ideal, we have to understand that for Kant, starting from the idea, so there's like a progress from the idea to the ideal, that the idea cannot be presented, as he says, in concreto. That is, it cannot have any kind of ground in the world, in the world of sensation. So Kant draws upon Plato, whose idea of the ideal goes as follows, where he quotes, uh, it was an idea in the divine understanding right? So the idea could exist among humans, but the ideal was just that thing that existed on the metaphysical plane. That is, it existed completely outside of all possible human cognition. Now, Kant refutes this by suggesting, as he's been doing the whole time, that actually we can find these ideals within humans, right? With our kind of a priori cognition, which he says uh, humans can have these ideals, or he calls these ideals Uh, They essentially allow humans to possess ideas, and they allow humans to kind of regulate the world around them. So he says uh, they have practical power as regulative principles, grounding the possibility of the perfection of certain actions. So the idea then gives us the rule, uh, whereas the ideal serves as the original image for the thoroughgoing determination of the copy. So it is the kind of originary point or what he has come to call the kind of transcendental object the thing that can't be represented but that we nevertheless have to kind of into it or not into it but we have to reason exists there because let's take an object in the world of course Kant says we only ever see the appearance of the thing but that does not preclude us from imagining the possibility of a thing beneath it even though we cannot actually ever know that thing we cannot represent that thing we can't quantify it or anything. So how do we arrive at this ideal? Well, he gives us an example. So he gives us the phrase, everything existing is thoroughly determined, which is one we got from earlier on in the book. So then we must concede that the thing itself is compared transcendentally with the sum total of all possible predicates, so the things that essentially define it. But not all of these predicates will essentially agree with one another. So we have a series of predicates that define a thing, but all those predicates might not actually agree with themselves or among one another. So these predicates grounded in kind of experience that might conflict with one another demand a kind of intervention, an intervention with reason or through a a priori reason that will turn it into an idea, therefore as what he calls an ideal of pure reason. So if we now think more generally about logic in this way where we have various predicates that might determine a thing and having that thing or through those predicates being able to imagine a kind of ideal or by negating them to some extent. Kant says that no non-ness of a thing or a predicate can cancel out the thing. So he gives the example to be non-mortal, so that is to be immortal, still means that you are a being for Kant. So it doesn't cancel out what you are. Now this point is gonna be uh, this is really important because from here he's gonna begin or in a little bit he's gonna try to refute three explanations for the existence of God. So they rely on these kind of logical forms that he's presenting now. So kind of keep this on the back of your back of your mind. So to kind of continue with this logical sequence for a moment, uh, we could think back to the transcendental dialectic, the first. Uh, book or the first couple of first book and other chapters where he talks about how a transcendent or a dialectical opposition only leads to illusion precisely because neither of which is actually getting at the truth of the matter they're only engaging in like sophistry because they rely on pure concepts so here Kant gives the idea that negation kind of works as a necessary uh, component of that framework, right? And for anyone familiar with the dialectic, that makes sense. So it works by having presenting a thesis that is met with an anti- antithesis which serves as its negation that then, you know, they collide, form a synthesis that becomes the new thesis that is opposed by a new antithesis. Jesus. That then, you know, does the same thing over and over and over again. So Kant's not satisfied with that because that's only a kind of like relative designation of a thing. Right? So, if we have, he gives the example of light. We only know what light is because of dark, because of its negation, because of the thing that is meant to oppose it. But that doesn't tell us anything about light. We just know that it is determined by its opposite. And for Kant, of course, we can't actually know because then that would posit that the thing in itself that exists uh, transcendent or transcends all possible experience and exists in this kind of like pure state. Of non-experience that can only be thought, you know, through pure concepts, which of course can't happen. But again, that doesn't preclude us from imagining that the thing out there exists. And he calls this the transcendental substratum, where he calls the all, or gives the possibility of the all, which in German I don't know, I don't know what the word is. Um, and for anyone like listening to this who has who's like very well familiar with this text in the original language, like you're probably really like scratching your head at the way that some of these words were translated because i can only imagine they were just german to english doesn't always translate so well so anyways so yeah it is on this um or in this on this transcendental substratum where things in themselves can be said to exist and that is in his words the only single or the one single genuine ideal of which human reason is capable so, this is to concede that there's some kind of maybe God like original highest being out there. This is because reason's ideal posits there to be things in themselves, that things that aren't determined in advance, things that, or a thing uh, that just kind of exists. So, upon establishing this possible argument for the existence of a highest being, that is God, he then takes the time to dismantle three other arguments for the existence of God that he opposes with his own transcendental one. So the first approach he calls uh, the ontological proof of God, which he says is impossible. He says all these proofs are impossible, but anyways. So this is the impossibility of the ontological proof of God. So the ontological proof of God tries to arrive at God's existence purely through pure concepts, which right away we should be like, oh yeah, of course Kant's not going to like that but he goes into it a little bit more. So he says, if we try to imagine that God exists and he doesn't always use the term God, sometimes he uses his highest being or, or most real being. Uh, so I'll, I just use God cause it's quicker. Um, if we try to imagine that God exists purely with concepts, we must then concede that these concepts did not, we were not born with them, right? We, amass these concepts through experience, as he laid out in the transcendental aesthetic and analytic. They don't just come about from nowhere. But he says the problem arrives when we start to imagine this God as existing outside of experience. So this God, through these pure concepts, is a thing that somehow exists outside of everything. So Kant says, how is that possible? How is it possible for us to imagine a God from concepts that we've amassed through experience that exists outside of that experience? And he says, quite simply, that we, it demands a leap. It demands a leap of faith for us to posit that. And then he says, that's useless. That gets us nowhere, simply because it, doesn't, it isn't grounded upon anything. It's just uh, pie-in-the-sky type sophistry. So he takes this further to go at or to go after the kinds of ways that God is imagined. So he gives the example of the phrase God is immortal. So we know that that's true. If God exists, then God must be immortal because it is embedded within the subject that is the predicate is immortal is embedded within the term God because God exists forever and always. But this presents a problem for Kant And the reason it presents a problem, or he illustrates this problem, by imagining a triangle. So he says, or gives the phrase, a triangle has three sides, which we know, right? Because the three sides is embedded within the idea of a triangle, just like immortality is embedded within the idea of God. Now he says that if we have this triangle, and we tried to, with pure concepts, take away the fact that it has three sides, that is, were to erase it, then we would be left with a contradiction. So we can't say a triangle has four sides because we know that that is a contradiction in terms or in another term, but whatever. So the only way we can actually oppose the triangle is by opposing the triangle, not its parts. So in the case of God, he says that it would be a contradiction to say that God is not immortal, that is to say God is mortal, because then it's no longer God, so therefore we have a contradiction. But then he says that we actually don't have a contradiction in this world of experience and reason that we think in to negate God altogether, because following the logic of negating the triangle, nothing negative happens, there's no contradiction there. It's not as though we are born with this uh, experience of God And then by opposing it we arrive at a contradiction no we still exist very much the way we always do so for him that's how he kind of characterizes the ontological proof he says that then it gets us nowhere because it relies on these kind of fantastical ideas that aren't grounded upon anything so the kind of two figures that he's challenging here that he thinks are uh, kind of figureheads of this ontological proof method are Leibniz and Descartes, who, you know, he's already mentioned his kind of beef with both, I think, at least Descartes, saying to Descartes, hey, how can you claim to think therefore you am without inadvertently also proving the existence of the world? Because we can only think by having a connection to the world, by having a connection to experience of the world. So for him, these thinkers are just like Descartes' method, you know, you sit in a little shack little fireplace or something, and try to arrive at God, to which Kant says that that's totally ridiculous. So in his words, thus the famous ontological Cartesian proof of the existence of a highest being from concepts is only so much trouble and labor lost, and a human being can no more become richer in insight from mere ideas than a merchant could in resources if he wanted to improve his financial state by adding a few zeros to his cash balance." which I thought is a funny way to put it. All right, so now, from there, the cosmological proof. So the cosmological proof doesn't begin from pure concepts. The cosmological proof instead says, we know that things exist. We know that in the world there are things. Now, we might not have any understanding of those things, but there are things in the world that we have some experience of. So therefore, something must exist necessarily or the phrase actually goes uh things necessarily exist so therefore something exists necessarily so this would seem like it's having some kind of connection to experience to the world which would then be something good for Kant but ultimately for him this proof falls back on a on the kind of ontological proof because it starts in an interesting place for Kant that is in the world of experience in the world of things as appearance but then it goes from there to pure concepts so this is the progress this is the the, um, the process things exist in the world therefore something exists necessarily okay we seem we seem okay so far but then they posit it is this highest being that makes things exist necessarily to which Kant says how did you go from this what might be a kind of truth so One example would be um, space and time, which seem to necessarily exist, but we cannot actually um, know what those things really are, nor can we know where from whence they came. We can only possibly imagine that, and Kant will come to say later on, that there's kind of nothing wrong with wanting to imagine that as a kind of thought experiment, but we can't let it lead us astray. So he says that ultimately the cosmological proof is the ontological proof in disguise, where it starts from a different point, but just ends up in the same kind of fanciful, fantastical realm. So they have a kind of heuristic dimension, so that is they can kind of teach us something. But these two proofs so far, the ontological and the cosmological, are just dialectical for him. Where, as he presented in the other parts, how you can have two opposing ideas, that he says arrive nowhere because all it comes down to is one person just giving up because neither of them actually tell us anything about a thing in itself because he can't do that nor does it give us a kind of transcendental understanding of a thing but it instead they instead just kind of exist on illusion and uh, fantasy forcing nothing to come about and then that propels us here into the third a uh, proof that is the physico-theological proof. So this is the proof that c- it goes as follows. There are things in the world and it appears as though these things have a kind of order or these things have a kind of constitutive pattern. Therefore, we can say that there's some kind of design behind it, behind them. So this either means that God exists within nature so if we kind of think back to the one of the transcendental, or one of the dialectical arguments, this would either mean that God is just a first point in a sequence of events in nature, or it means that God exists outside of it and kind of like designs everything. But then again, we just fall back on this dialectical framework that thinks it can think to this point, right? As though it can go back in the chain of events to a possible original point, which can't happen because that's outside of the realm of all experience because the only experience we have of the world is one that is ongoing, right? We can't imagine a point when time stops nor, or space stops, so we can't imagine the point when it began or when it uh, when either of those began. And we can't imagine ourselves coming out of this framework, outside of these kind of constitutive things called space and time to then imagine God. But what is interesting here is that Kant says that this approach, it can't really prove the existence of God as a, as a highest being or, or God as we know it, but it might prove something else. And he says that it doesn't necessarily, or our critique of it doesn't necessarily preclude the possibility that God, that God exists as a kind of architect which he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on, which is, I thought it was really interesting. But to kind of frame it like that, God as architect, not his highest being, it, it like simultaneously positions God in a transcend, transcendent position that is outside of all experience and all that, but at the same time, makes God wholly present within this world. And I think that that is because uh, Kant is interested in looking at the world through human perception, right? So the world doesn't exist out there. We can only understand it by, you know, ourselves. So we can through, like kind of, we can through a priori kind of reason, look at ourselves to find out how this world is being constituted. So therefore, there's a kind of connect between the world and the human observing it. Now, if we seem to have a kind of order in our mind, and that order is you know part and parcel with that very process of perceiving, then the world itself will appear ordered because it's almost like it's being filtered by our ordered senses, our ordered reason, our ordered understanding. So it seems like it's not totally outlandish to then turn that framework back around upon us and say that God is actually within us, not in a kind of like, you know, Catholic way, like oh, it's, in, it's, in, it's in, He is in all of us, that thing but rather we are the kind of architects in that framework. We construct the world outside. Now, I don't know for sure if that is what Kant is getting at because he doesn't fully develop it, nor do I really know what, like, you know, Kantian scholars would say. I could be totally off base so that, you know, I'm just kind of framing this in a uh, provisionary way in a, just just to kind of keep my distance from it, but it's just an interesting thought. So now he begins to critique all theology that relies on speculative principles. Because let's not forget, Kant believed in God. In many, like, he he was a God believer. But he was very peculiar in the way that God was uh, argued for, that God was reasoned for. So he gives us two kinds of, like, theological approaches to the existence of God. So we had these three that he gave us, but now he's going into these other two here. So there's the transcendental theology, he calls it, which relies on pure reason, what he calls deism or the deist. Then there's natural theology, which relies on soul, on the soul or revelation, which is the theist or theism. So the deist, and just to repeat, the deist is the transcendental theologist, so relying on pure reason. The deist believes God to be the cause of the world, whereas the theist, the theist sorry, uh, which is the natural theologist that relies on the soul or revelation, believes God to be the author of the world. So deist believes God is the cause of the world, whereas theist believes God is the author of the world. So he's going to further break these two down. So starting with the transcendental theologist, that is the deist, so the person that believes God to be the cause of the world, there are two types. There is the cosmotheologist, or the cosmotheology, and then ontotheology, where cosmotheology believes that God derived from experience in general, and ontotheology, God derived from concepts. And then the, in natural theology, that is the theist, who believes God to be the author of the world, The two approaches are the physical theology that is God observed in natural laws, or moral theology that is God observed in moral laws. So he provides these as a kind of descriptor of the different possible approaches, further narrowing his uh, challenge to the proofs to kind of give us um, a backdrop to understand the possible different approaches that would fall into the dialectical illusions, right? So. Some of them more interested in experience, that is, through natural laws or moral laws, and those more interested in concepts, that is, from, uh, from, from concepts themselves. But then he reiterates to proceed without experience would be to forget moral laws entirely, but to include an experience would limit us as to what is possibly conditioned. So in all of this, it seems to him that there's some kind of like natural drive so to speak, in humans towards the transcendental, towards pure concepts. So our reason then for him uh, corresponds to principles that do not come about through nature, through kind of experience of the world, but instead are the kind of tools we've amassed to evaluate that nature. So we we seem to be positioned from the outset in a kind of like transcendental point. That is outside of experience because we are given the tools to kind of look at that world through experience and the thing that we are evaluating he calls the systematic so the transcendental principle of reason makes the systematic necessary so he then also he then calls this power and he says that power uh he calls the causality of a substance where we can only assume that there are as many powers as effects. So that is things operating on something and effects. Like no reaction, can, every every action is an equal and opposite reaction. Might be another way to think about it. But we can't let this lead us astray because if we were to look at these powers as having a kind of commonality, we would then be kind of committing ourselves to an illusion that is looking for a kind of fundamental power that is a highest being, which we can't actually arrive at. Now he kind of goes into a digression uh, concerned with natural scientists and how they use reason. So reason has broadly two drives. First is to understand the universal, what he calls the domain or the ge- genera or the genus, and the other drive is to understand determinacy, that is the content or species. So he thinks he thinks about the natural scientists interested in looking at a genus and then from there dividing that into species and then subspecies and so on and so forth. Like there seems to be an endless drive to differentiate, to kind of uh, taxonomize various things in order to understand them. So reason is always searching for a kind of uh, lower species in the case of like animals or something or anything that can kind of fall under that umbrella term. So there's, there's an infinite division going on. Now Kant says that this is necessary Because if we stopped doing that, if we stopped breaking it down and said we arrived at the bottom point, then we would say that there is, you know, an endpoint to, you know, our reasons capacity, and then we'd be screwed because then we would also be positing there being a beginning point. Or if we were to say that we're just not interested in this process, then we would have no distinction between higher... And lower species or broader and lower ones and this isn't like a like um, superiority of species but actually like looking at each species and breaking them down so reason then in this process of constantly searching looking for new things prepares the understanding which he says as follows so reason thus prepares the field for the understanding by a principle of sameness of kind in the manifold under higher genera By a principle of the variety of of what is same in kind under lower species and in order to complete the systematic unity, it adds, still another law of the affinity of all concepts which offers a continuous transition from every species to every other through a graduated increase of varieties and continuity of form. Variety, sorry. We can call these the principles of the homogeneity, specification, and continuity of forms. So these are the three operations that are occurring for any kind of understanding to exist because we must be able to have a homogeneous understanding of things. So we must understand all trees as being, having certain characteristics. That is, it's not going to eat us. Um, they aren't edible, generally. Um, you know, any number of things that allow us to kind of clump them together. So we have in our kind of synthetic or... Um, in the realm of a perception, we have a kind of coding mechanisms that's mechanism that sees everything as being coded so that we know what they are. Then there's specification that gives us the various varieties of things in order for us to understand. And then finally, uh, the continuity of forms. So that's the kind of our ability to kind of look at differences that happen within each species. So we know of things like progress in space and time where nothing exists uh, purely as uh, stagnantly so these three things serve very important functions so there's homogeneity specification and continuity where he says that the first law therefore guards against excess in the manifold variety of original genera and recommends sameness of kind so that is homogeneity Uh, the second that is specification On the contrary, it limits in turn the inclination to unanimity and demands one's universal concepts. And then thirdly, we have the continuity. Uh, It unites the first two, prescribing even in the case of the highest manifoldness a sameness of kind through the graduated transition from one species to another. So what these do... Uh, reason presupposes these cognitions of the understanding which are first applied to experience and seeks the unity of these cognitions in accordance with ideas that go much further than experience can reach and that these essentially lay the groundwork for the systematic unity and this unity presupposes that all things are connected in some form or other because if something wasn't connected to something else then we would posit it being free-floating, right? Then we would posit it as a pure concept outside of the realm of experience. Because as we already saw in the case of cause and effect, everything has a cause. There's nothing that just popped into the world unless it was God, which we can't prove. So this regulative reason or reason that kind of looks at the systematic unity of things can um, justify a highest being without error, according to Kant, and that looks like this where he says, and this is on 6.14, as long as we keep to this presupposition of a regulative principle, then even error cannot do us any harm, for then nothing more can follow from it in any case than that where we expected a teleological connection, a merely mechanical or physical one, is to be found. In such a case, we only miss one more uh, unity, but we do not ruin this unity of reason in its empirical use. But even this setback cannot at all affect the law itself in its universal and teleological aim. For although an an anatomist uh, can be convicted of error when he relates some organ of an animal's body to an end which, as one can clearly show, does not follow from it, it is nevertheless quite impossible to prove in any one case that a natural arrangement, whatever it might be, has no end at all. So it's more, it's broad, right? When we think about it in terms of the regulative principle, because we aren't giving kind of specific proofs, like the anatomist who was wrong by saying that, you know, attributing one end to an organ that wasn't true. Now, the the person engaging in the regulative principle cannot be wrong because they are just saying there must be an end. Like there must be something that follows it because nothing just exists without... You know, something following from it. But it is also possible for us to use this incorrectly, and he's very clear about that. So he says that if we depart from this restriction of the idea to a merely regulative use, then reason will be misled in several ways by forsaking the ground of experience, which has to contain the markers for its course, and by venturing beyond experience into the incomprehensible and inscrutable in whose heights it necessary becomes, necessarily becomes dizzy, because from this standpoint, it seems itself entirely cut off from every use attuned to experience." So again, like broken record, experience trumps all. So it is only from looking at things with a kind of step back, and that's not a step outside, but just a step back, to say that, okay, we know everything has a cause and effect. So there is some kind of sequence. Now, what happens if we call this sequence God? Because it's always there. It seems to regulate everything. It doesn't constitute everything because everything is constituted within the realm of experience by various different actions. So it seems like the entire process, when taken broadly, not, not abstractly, because then we'd be with pure concepts, seems to adduce some kind of God-like thing. But this must remain only an idea, lest we, you know, claim to have arrived at a kind of pure understanding. So then from here we get into the last book of the uh, text, or the last kind of real section, and that is the Transcendental Doctrine of Method. So here he kind of, he wants to look at four different approaches to pure reason that he can, he proposes. So there's the discipline approach, there's canon There's the architectonic, and then there's history. And he begins with the discipline of pure reason. So that's chapter one in this book. So let me just say one more thing first. Uh, By the transcendental doctrine of method, therefore, I understand the determination of the formal conditions of a complete system of pure reason. With the same, we shall have to concern ourselves with the discipline, a canon, an architectonic, and finally, a history of pure reason, and will accomplish in a transcendental respect. That which under the name of practical logic, with regard to the use of the understanding in general, the schools sought but accomplished only badly. So that is what were they screwed up, but Kant supplants it with what do you think how he how he thinks it could have been done better? So we start here with the discipline of pure reason. So to kind of preface this, I'm gonna read a passage from about fifty pages later. So this is about page six hundred seventy two. He says, it is humiliating for human reason that it accomplishes nothing in its pure use and even requires a discipline to check its extravagances and avoid the deceptions that come from them. So discipline serves a kind of regulative function that it keeps pure reason at bay. So to kind of imagine this use of pure reason, he breaks it down into kind of two uh, broad schools, that is philosophy and mathematics, where he asks if mathematics use of pure reason or pure concepts is as dogmatic as philosophies, as he's been criticizing the whole way through here. So he says, yes, it kind of does, but there is a big difference. And the big difference is that philosophy relies on concepts, whereas math constructs concepts. So here I'm going to read a part where he says quite clearly his uh, the opposition he sees between philosophy and math. So the great good fortune that reason enjoys by means of mathematics leads entirely naturally to the expectation that, if not mathematics itself, then at least its method will also succeed outside of the field of magnitudes, since it brings all of its concepts to intuitions that it can give a priori, and by means of which, so to speak, it becomes master over nature. So he opposes this to pure philosophy, which, on the contrary, fumbles around in nature with discursive a priori concepts without being able to make their relation, their relation reality intuitive a priori and by that means confirm it. So he continues on this by saying that philosophy essentially takes space and time for granted because, you know, it's relying on these pure concepts that somehow exist outside of space and time. Whereas math for him is restricted, but he thinks about that in a good way because it seems to be restricted by, you know, the kind of terrestrial sphere, that is the sphere of experience and the world and all that. So to take this further, he looks at three different components of philosophy and math. Those are their definitions, their axioms, and their demonstrations. So to start out with definitions, he says that an empirical object cannot be sufficiently defined because it always is up to interpretation. So a pure concept, keeping this in mind, that is a thing, all things are kind of subjective, can't really be defined. So in that case, philosophy can only end with a definition, but it cannot start with one because it cannot create a definition from which to proceed. Whereas in math, the opposite is the case because math creates its own kind of concepts, that is mathematical theorems or even shapes that don't exist in nature. Like how many people would be aware of what a trapezoid is without having taken math class? Like it doesn't seem as though these things exist out there. So they kind of create their own world and it is by virtue of that that, it, and it's a world connected to our world of experience that every single operation through it abides by those laws. They don't go outside of the bounds of their own laws. So therefore it is capable of beginning with new definitions. It can't create them because then that would go out or it can't end with them because then that would imply an end and outside of the realm of experience. So therefore in math, Definitions can never be mistaken, because the definition 2 plus 2 equals 4 is always true, always. Now, there are some exceptions to this, like uh, let's take the rule or the theorem or the proof that a curve or a circle is a curved line uh, where every point is equidistant from another point, from from a single point, so the point in the middle where every point in a line that is curved is connected to the middle. Now, Kant says that part of that is true in that it can't be refuted. That is, every point is, uh, it's a line where every point is connected to the middle, as it is the same distance from the middle. But it doesn't actually imply a circle. Like, we need the bridge of the curve to actually arrive at the idea of the circle that Kant says doesn't exist in pure concepts. Like, we must have a kind of understanding of it in experience So there is a limitation there, and he's aware of that. So then he moves from definitions to the axioms. So these are the synthetic a priori principles that do not exist in philosophy, according to Kant. Uh, For example, that everything has its cause is not an axiom because must look to world to confirm it. So in philosophy, take the axiom, everything has its cause. We can't know that because we haven't experienced everything, nor have we existed at every point to see that there hasn't been a beginning point that didn't have its cause. So we can't actually take that, whereas in math, we can have axioms. Like the an example, triangle has three sides, or the angles in a triangle, um, if added up, all e- always equal 180 degrees. Or that 2 times 2 equals 4. So I just want to read a little part here. To be sure, in the analytic, in the table of the principles of pure understanding, I have also thought of certain axioms of intuition. But the principle that was introduced there was not itself an axiom, but only served to provide the principle of the possibility of axioms in general, and was itself only a principle from concepts. So if anyone was hearing this and like thinking, wait, didn't he give us all those axioms at the beginning? This should clarify that and that's on the bottom of 640 and then finally here he moves into demonstrations which are the apodictic proofs uh that philosophy doesn't have doesn't have apodictic apodictic proofs apodictic proofs as the transcendental dialectic section showed us they can only give us kind of sophistry illusion that can always be opposed by equal sophistry and equal illusion whereas math does math has apodictic proofs that is two plus two equals four it always equals four forever and for always so then he kind of gives us a new term here to think about this where any apodictic proof apparently stumbled upon or provided can be either dogmata or mathemata where dogmata relies on pure concepts that is having no connection to the real world where mathemata doesn't rely so much on pure concepts but actually has some kind of connection to the world so then he kind of comes to the side of pure reason, comes to its defense, where he says that he doesn't want pure reason to be opposed with another kind of dogmatism. Like, I don't know, let's use a kind of an anachronistic, because it wouldn't really apply, example. But like, if someone's using science, you know, to justify an argument, and someone comes in saying like, oh, well, the Bible says the opposite, like, I'm not knocking on anyone who would say that, but that is uh, an example of a kind of dogmatic refusal of something that isn't grounded upon any kind of reality right it's just like well god says this so therefore that is true like how do you how do you oppose that sure we might have a problem with pure reason but if we oppose it with a kind of with another kind of dogmatic uh argument then we just we only amplify the problem we don't actually get a its solution and we'd only kind of contribute to that promotion of the dialectic and here he gives, he kind of presents the stakes of this, which is super interesting. He says that to keep on a dialectical path fosters war or fosters conflict. He uses the term war, at least in the English translation. Whereas to give over to transcendental approach is to drive towards perpetual peace. Uh, now, I've I've read that essay, the perpetual peace one, um, which, yeah, you should go read for sure. But it's really interesting where he says that, you know, there's this kind of transcendental approach that he doesn't ever fully like sketch out because then if he did, the project would be complete, but he doesn't. He always, he comes like infinitely close and then he, then he's like, oh, well, we can't say that because it's, you know, then we're just pure concepts. Um, but it's still an interesting proposition that he's saying that if everyone agrees with this approach, we would have, be driving towards perpetual peace which I don't know how I feel about that. But uh, anyways, it's interesting nevertheless. And that, well, he continues a bit. He says the transcendental approach should be taught in schools. But that reason can still be used imaginatively. Like it shouldn't be cast out totally. Uh, But to keep in mind that any kind of imagination or any kind of imaginary solution that we arrive at is always already grounded in experience. So, you know, we must question how, radical or thoughtful it really is so this transcendental approach he then sketches he kind of gives us three characteristics of it first is that it must be associated with experience no surprise there two only interested in a single proof because if it claimed to give many proofs then those those other proofs would cancel each other out so then we would be left with no proofs Uh, because all we're driving at really is that one proof like the one true thing Uh, Number three, it is extensive, not uh, apagogic. So apagogic depends upon refusal of one observation to prove another, which is just sophistry. So then from there we get into now chapter two, that is the canon of pure reason, where he says that the canon is the sum total of the a priori principles of the correct use of certain cognitive faculties in general. So that is like the apparatuses that we have in order to engage in the kind of correct use of certain cognitive faculties so any legitimate use of pure reason he says which must also have a kind of canon attributed to it must only be concerned with the practical not the speculative so this has three interests primarily and they are the questions of the freedom of the will the immortality of the soul and the existence of god so let me just read something here about that In a word, these three propositions always remain transcendent for speculative reason and have no imminent use, that is, one that is permissible for objects of experience and therefore useful for us even in some way, but are rather considered in themselves entirely idle, even though extremely difficult efforts for our reason, or of our reason. If, then, these three cardinal propositions are not at all necessary for our knowing, and yet are insistently recommended to us by our reason. Their importance must really concern only the practical. So in the case of freedom, he wants to consider it in terms of a kind of practical sense, what he calls a practical freedom, that he opposes to a transcendental freedom, which I will read here. Um, We thus cognize practical freedom through experience as one of the natural causes, namely a causality of reason in the determination of the will, whereas transcendental freedom requires an independence of this reason itself. With regard to its causality for initiating a series of appearances, from all determining causes of the world of the senses, and to this extent, seems to be contrary to the law of nature, thus to all possible experience, and so remains a problem. Which shouldn't be necessarily surprising, because he's always cautious about that. So freedom, then, operates via some fundamental laws that open up some questions and say broadly, what ought to happen? Right? If I have freedom, what ought to happen? What should I do? How should I get there? Or anything like that. So it opens up three questions What can I know? What should I do? And what may I hope? So the first one, what can I know, is purely speculative for Kant. I mean, that's what the whole book has been about here. Uh, The second, what should I know is practical and is therefore moral. So we then ask, you know, what is it that this empirical situation we find ourselves in through experience and connection of the world can actually teach us? What can it teach us about the world? And then thirdly, what may I hope? So this is for him both practical and theoretical. So it and leads fundamentally to the question of happiness because it, you know, from this we can infer uh, a kind of value judgment, you know, what is it that I need to know to fill, fill in the blank there, to be happy, let's say. So happiness, then more generally, something that he turns his attention to here, can be ventured through two different routes or by two different routes. The first is practical law, that is, from a motive of happiness, which is pragmatic and also empirical, or two, uh, nothing other than worthiness, that is, moral law, which is pure. So the first one that is the kind of practical, pragmatic one tells us what to do if we want to partake in happiness, right? What to do with that, you know, to be a part of the happiness agenda. Whereas the second one that is the the pure or the moral one tells us how to behave to be worthy of happiness. So through these moral laws that we can only intuit a priori, we can actually get a glimpse of what is considered, you know, the happiness project. How do we arrive at happiness? So he says, the second, that is the uh, question about how to behave to be worthy of happiness uh, the second abstracts from inclinations and natural means of satisfying them and considers only the freedom of a rational being in general and the necessary conditions under which alone it is in agreement with the distribution of happiness in accordance in accordance with the principles and thus is at least it at least can rest on mere ideas of pure reason and be cogniz- cognized a priori so let's continue down further down the page. This is, this is on 678. Pure reason thus contains, not in its speculative use, to be sure, but yet in a certain practical use, namely the moral use, principles of the possibility of experience, namely of those actions in conformity with moral precepts which could be encountered in the history of humankind. And now one more here. Sorry for all the quotes, but tells us a story. I call the world as it is, As it would be if it were in conformity with all moral laws, as it can in accordance with the freedom of rational beings and should be in accordance with the necessary laws of morality, a moral world. So we actually get a glimpse of this moral world precisely because it affects that we have some effect uh, or some kind of play with it by cognizing ourselves or by cognizing that world, which is connected to ourselves. And it gives us a glimpse of those moral laws, which can then open up that possibility of understanding what is it that makes happiness or us worthy of happiness. And this must then, therefore, rest upon an ideal of the highest good. Because if there's something, a common ground upon which these moral laws are, are are found, and there is a kind of commonality among all these moral laws that we can't really know in and of themselves, but that we can feel are there precisely because we, you know, they exist in the world which we intuit with our senses, then we must have, some, it must have some kind of connection with this ideal that is universal, all-encompassing ideal. So then we can we wouldn't run too far afield if we were to say then that morality is actually a system and that happiness for him is proportionate to the morality of a rational being. So this is really just a, for him, a better argument for the existence of God than any kind of speculative theology, like the ones he was critiquing earlier. But we cannot really claim to know um, God's will from this, right? So we can't say what we've said so far, that is their structure in the moral world. We cannot then infer from that what God's will is, what God's intention is, what even God is. We can just kind of know it's there, kind of like the transcendental object underneath all things. So then truth, and this bridges upon or kind of leans on the idea of the categorical imperative, which he doesn't talk about in this book, but that is the idea that, um, you know, we take what is right, by asking ourselves is this right in every situation or is this right for everyone so so truth for him is kind of uh measured by whether by whether or not it is accepted by everybody so traditionally in like the dialectical sense or dialectical in this book like how he's talking about this sophistry uh there's kind of three different ways of um pushing truth which he kind of pits on the side of persuasion, right? Like sophistry. Uh, So there's an opinion, like you can have an opinion, in which case uh, you are subjectively and objectively kind of unsure of yourself. There's believing, which for him means that you are subjectively sure of yourself, but objectively not too sure of yourself. And then there's knowing, where you are both subjectively and objectively sure of yourself. So, but to no moral, uh, but in opposition of these, moral law transcends these into certainty. But it is still only subjective, right? Because I can't infer uh, a kind of totalizing framework out of this. I can only kind of imagine that it's there. And that here propels us into the third chapter, the architectonic. So this is primarily concerned with the system, specifically its scientific investigation, So he defines a system here as the unity of the manifold cognitions under one idea. So all cognition is then attributed to architectonic schematic or schema, which can then be either for him historical or rational. So a historical idea or historical kind of um, knowledge base or historical reason comes from data. Like I learn what Leibniz says about something That doesn't mean I've produced what Leibniz says about something. I've only learned it, like I've learned facts. So that's kind of historical. Whereas rational implies a kind of uh, generation of new ideas through principles. So he here is really concerned with the philosophical use of pure reason that exists in the realm of the rational, which he kind of broadly encapsulates under the umbrella of metaphysics, so metaphysics for him can be either speculative or practical. Speculative metaphysics is the meta sorry speculative is the metaphysics of nature, whereas the practical is the metaphysics of morals. So metaphysics concerned essentially with this architectonic unity, which is broken down into four kind of broad approaches, or four main parts, I should say, and they are uh, ontology, rational physiology, rational cosmology. And rational theology but as you know this whole book has been suggesting any kind of metaphysics that see, tries to extend beyond the realm of uh, experience is surely going to be it's going to run a field and it's going to go uh, it's going to become groundless so he kind of answers a possible ref- refusal or a rebuttal by someone proposing that where he says where he asks this ask the question How can I expect an a priori cognition, and thus a metaphysics of objects that are given to our senses, thus given a posteriori? And how is it possible to cognize the nature of things in accordance with a priori principles, and to arrive at a rational physiology? The answer is, we take from experience nothing more than what is necessary to give ourselves an object, partly of outer and partly of inner sense. So the former is accomplished through the mere concept of matter, impenetrable life extension, the latter through the concept of a thinking being and the empirically inner representation, I think. Otherwise, we must in the entire metaphysics of these objects abstain entirely from any empirical principles that might add any sort of experience beyond the concept in order to judge something about these objects. So it's not like he's moving beyond uh, all experience, but recognizing what part of experience is always embedded within that, and that is how experience always gives us these objects and concepts necessary for the, its realization, that is, the, of metaphysics. Now, the stakes are that, or what it essentially leads to for him, that is, metaphysics, is, is the culmination of all culture, in his words, uh, or sorry, I should say the culmination of all culture of human reason which is indispensable even if one sets aside its influence as a science for certain determinate ends. So then he continues here, That is mere speculation it serves more to prevent prevent errors than to amplify cognition, does no damage to its value, but rather gives it all the more dignity and authority through its office as censor, which secures the uh, general order and unity, indeed the well-being of the scientific community, and prevents its cheerful and fruitful efforts from straying from their chief end, that of the general happiness. So there's kind of, like, I naively read in that a kind of political project to be had that is, especially how he was talking earlier about perpetual peace, but it seems as though he's, and this is, you know, the system he's trying to create, trying to sketch, uh, proposing that this kind of new metaphysics can drive us to this possible better situation. But he doesn't really fully develop on that maybe it's for the second and third critiques that he does that but i haven't read them yet so i don't know uh but anyways here let's finish this up with the last chapter that is the history of pure reason when he just he says right off the bat this is really just a kind of precursor to a bigger project and he wasn't really able to finish it but he gives a very kind of um precursory, provisionary type introduction to this um, whole history of pure reason, where he says that there were firstly the kind of sensual philosophers and the intelligible philosophers. So the sensual philosophers were indicative of the work of Epicurus, and the intelligible philosophers were indicative of Plato, where the sensual philosophers were interested in experience, it's pretty obvious, and then the intelligible philosophers were interested in concepts. So then he Traces this down a little further and says that the split of idea of pure reason uh, could then be traced between the split between Aristotle, who was considered kind of empiricist, and Plato, a newologist. Uh, Yeah, that he's kind of delineating that split, and then suggests that many centuries later, with Locke and uh, Leibniz, he saw Locke following the words or the um, project of Aristotle in experience, with exception. And then um, Leibniz following Plato's project, and then finally in terms of method. So that is the either the naturalistic or scientific method. Uh, the naturalists believe it possible to assess size of moon with just one's eyes. That's how he kind of characterizes them. And then the scientific proceeds systematically. So I assume the naturalists correspond to Plato uh here because you know if you just try to arrive at something via concepts and that is you bracket off all experience, then you wouldn't really be interested in doing experiments where um the scientific procedure would be more indicative of the experimental experience based side. But I he doesn't say where they fit, but that's how I read it. Da-da-da-da. Should I turn that off? Okay, holy Christ! I think that's it. Do I have anything else to say? Seven hundred pages of uh, first critique. I'm gonna take a break from that. Those long books for a while. These tombs, tomes. Sorry. Um, But yeah, if anyone made it this far, congratulations. It was probably more of a struggle for you to listen to me ramble than for me to actually read everything and take meticulous notes. I probably have 50 pages of notes on this book which maybe is not enough maybe I should have had more but anyways it's good stuff read it if you can but it's long and it's really difficult Uh, but if you heard what I did and you liked it you know what to do if you didn't like it you know what to do just be nice about